Mojave Beach Productions. Writers Write Write, an experimental theater created just for writers like you. I'm Esther Luttrell, and I've earned my living as a screenwriter for oh, more years than I'll confess to until we get to know each other a little bit better. Being here on this podcast, I'm going to assume that you've sat in on webinars and conferences and seminars for, well, how long now? And here's what, here's what I'd like you to commit to right this minute. I'd like you to promise yourself that this is the last time you'll listen to anybody tell you how to write because you know, and and I know that you know, you're only putting off sitting with your rear end in a chair and your fingers on your computer keyboard and writing that story that's been rattling around in your brain until you're going just a, a wee nuts. But you ask yourself, how do you start? Everybody asks that. How do you get started? Well, that is the tough part. Uh, getting going, finding the discipline to, to put the thing on paper or on your computer screen. Life just gets in the way. You know, I have every intention. Today's a good example. I have every intention of writing when I get up in the morning, but oh my goodness, what a cute bunch of jokes my friend in Iowa just sent me. I'll just read those first. And, oh, I'll just forward those on to my closest 150 email buddies. Oh, and I've got to respond to the friend who sent it. Oops, oh my goodness, Amazon just delivered my fifth package of the week, and gosh, it's only Tuesday. Well, why don't I just have a cup of hot tea while I'm up? Maybe I can find an old Matlock rerun while I I just get the juices flowing here. By 4 o'clock that afternoon, I'm really tired, and I'm not sure why. I mean, it sure isn't because I've been writing all day. Well, anyway, something like that happens, it seems like, every day. You know, right after I left MGM Studios, my son died. And when I learned that I was going to get his small insurance money, I knew I wanted to spend it in a way that would honor him. Since he'd been an aspiring screenwriter, I decided to use the funds and go across the country helping other aspiring screenwriters. Uh, I was going to share with them what it took me years and years to learn. And I told myself I'd do it in Dean's name. And sure enough, every person in every workshop, I knew they weren't my Dean, but they were somebody's Dean. And I would do for them what I wish I'd done for him. But, you know, having never taken a writing class or attending a writing workshop even, I really didn't have any idea how it was really done. I just decided to to do what I wish somebody had done for me early on in my writing career. And I don't really consider it a career. I'm just grateful to have a bunch of jobs. Anyway, when I decided to do these workshops across the country, I called the man who had been my producer and friend when I was production coordinator on the TV series Chips. Do you remember that? Eric Estrada, Chips. (laughs) Well, anyway, his name's Don Gold, and gosh, Don's been in the business since he was a teenager. He'd been a writer-producer on not only Chips, but right after that for seven years, Miami Vice, and then five years or so on Diagnosis Murder, and 
He'd written earlier than that. He'd written for the Rockford Files. But he's, he's really done everything, including raising money and producing and directing uh, his, his own screenplay that became a feature film. Anyway, with the blessing of his wife, Joella, and my husband at that time, off we went. I think we gave something like a 43-day screenwriting workshops over a period of four years. So when I decided to do this, I decided to invite him to join us today. Because Don is exactly the kind of person that you need to know, you need to listen to, and you need to learn from. People who've, who've been there, done it, and been tremendously successful at it over a very long period of time. My other co-hosts today are Jack Allen, whom I met when he was Director of Development for Stockton Briggle Productions. Now, that's the title that you're aiming for. That's the person you want to connect with when you pitch an idea, the Director of Development. And I tell you the truth, they're Hollywood's best kept secret. It's really hard for a writer to go to them. I might suspect you maybe haven't even heard that title. It's because they don't want to deal with writers. And that's why they do get their work from agents. But I want you to circumvent that way of doing it. I want you to get directly directly to the director of development. I want you to be so knowledgeable about what you're doing that you don't have to have somebody interfering for you. Uh, you can just do it yourself. You want to get to that director of development against all odds. During the course of this recording, uh, I, I'm i in the Midwest and Jack's in Hollywood. We lost our sound connection. So later, when I take you through the actual screenwriting workshop, the one I gave across the country, I'm going to have Jack come back with me again and He'll tell you all the things that he meant to talk about today. We, we got some good things, good things he can pass along to you. But he has so much more to say, and I hate it that we lost some sound here. Patrick McGranahan's here with us today. Now, Patrick's a familiar name to Mojave Beach production followers and subscribers. He's been our co-host, and he's been, wow, our technical a- angel. I started to say advisor, but I think I'll say angel from day one. And the funny thing is, I met Patrick when he took one of my screenwriting workshops that was at the University of Missouri many years ago. And now he's part of our Mojave team. He writes for our children's theater and also is the creator of a steamboat series. It's going to be a mystery series for our Dark Moon Library. So Patrick is here to tell you about the many things he's learned. Steve Young. I <laughs> love Steve Young. Steve Young's in Hawaii, so we're always struggling with the time difference. I met Stephen at a, on an online book club, and we both got kicked out right away. I can't even remember why. I just remember that we both found it hilarious, and we've stayed friends ever since. Steve jumped right in when I wanted to do this and built the website that you see for us, MojaveBeachProductions.com. Steve went to Hollywood when he was 19. He was going to make it as a screenwriter. And I know you're going to relate to his stories and to the reasons that he decided to pursue screenwriting on a freelance basis back in Hawaii. He really, uh, after his little incidents there, he didn't want anything else to do with Hollywood. But he does want to make films. And he's passionate about screenwriting. He also has a podcast of his own that you might catch on uh, Spotify. It's called from BBQ, barbecue, to movies. 
and he does in-depth movie reviews and analyzing movies, and he's just so fun to talk to. He's got a, sometimes he gets a little bit of a potty mouth, but on him it's kind of cute. But it's his Hollywood experiences that I wanted him to share with you. You know, learning the craft is one thing, but you also have to learn how to fit in. Hollywood's funny. Um, it's full of people who fit in. They're, they're all weird. I mean, the weirder you are, the better you're going to fit in. Anyway, it's right that you know. This is a place where you can literally starve to death while being complimented and told you're a genius. and It's just a very, very strange place. And that's why I wanted Steve to tell you his stories. Uh, we've invited two guests uh, that I feel really represent a film goer. And after all, your story, that great screenplay you're determined to write, it has to appeal to a vast audience. And you want to be able to tell the person listening to your pitch exactly why the public is going to love it. So Kyra, um, Kyra Robinoff, she's joining us from New York City. She's a published author and a movie buff. She actually has a background in film, too. But she'll tell you more about that. She's also just a really good person to represent the person who would be looking for the movie that you might one day write. Jeff Evans, God love Jeff Evans. He's in Orlando, and he's our Mojave Beach uh, announcer. He's a professional actor, and he has a unique take on what an actor expects from a screenplay, and that's very important. So now we're back to me. Well, as for me, I'm pleased, but I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you that my textbook, Tools of the Screenwriting Trade, can be found in the Writers Guild of America Library. And I really did tell them the book needs to be updated. And they tell me that until that's done, they'll continue to carry and endorse only this book on screenwriting. I didn't intend to write anything further for Hollywood when I moved to the Midwest. But about four years ago, I was approached to write a screenplay based on the life of a Chickasaw woman who turned out to be one of the most fascinating individuals, male or female, I'd ever read about. And her name was Teata, T-E-A-T-A. -A. The movie actually won lots of awards. For everybody involved, Graham Greene received Best Supporting Actor from a number of major film festivals, and Best Play, Best uh, Screenplay, oh, lots, lots of awards. Anyway, um... <laughs> And on top of that, a silly little movie that I produced and co-wrote a long time ago. I just heard that it's being re-released soon. So you might want to watch for something called Lithium Springs. <laughs> Dove Foundation named it one of the best family films of the year. And it actually made the cover of the Library Journal, again, as the best family film. But mainly, I have to confess, uh, creating Mojave Beach Productions for you is the best thing that's happened yet. So today, my friends and I are going to share experiences and advice that we all hope will give you just a little bit of a start in the right direction. Today is just good conversation. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of the screenwriting workshop down the line. You need first just to know what you're getting into. So let's go. Showtime.
introduce it. Let's introduce everybody. First of all, it's Donald Gold. Donald, we yeah. go back how far? 19... Oh, God, a couple of years. Oh, 1981. Isn't that when I came to work on chips? 1981. Well, that sounds about right. Tell me about those early Hollywood years, because I remember all your stories. You went to work at 17 in Universal Studios as a stock boy. Well, in early Hollywood years, when you lived in L.A., L.A. was a small city. And you knew everybody knew somebody or had a relative that was in the motion picture business. That was just it. So you sort of grew up in that type of atmosphere, dealing with people, with actors, with people behind the scenes. And when I went to work, I went to work at Columbia. Uh, yeah, not Universal. Universal was later. Oh. We started at Columbia in the stock room and then went on to be a location manager for a little while. And in those days, every major studio was allowed to make two second assistant directors a year. So it was a very prized and very competitive area. And I got chosen and got made a second assistant director. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Yeah, in those days they said, okay, you're a second assistant director. I said, good. Now what do I do? Patrick, are you here today to co-host with me? Are you going to speak up? Well, I thought that's why I was invited. <laughs> no, you're not invited. You're part of it. <laughs> anyway. Yes, I am. I okay. am here and, and very happy to be here amongst these esteemed guests. Well, Patrick, I'm going to introduce Jack Allen now. There was a time when Don Gold, after Chips was over and Don went on and did Miami Vice and then later Diagnosis Murder, where he was producer and he wrote some of the, sec some of the episodes. Around that time, Don and I started doing cross-country screenwriting workshops. And every now and then I would invite this darling fellow that I was doing some freelance writing for the company he worked for, which was, what was it? A Stockton Briggles production company. It was called what, Jack? Stockton Briggle Productions. Briggle Hennessy oh, Carruthers. That's clever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought there was another partner in there somewhere. Started, yeah, Briggle Hennessy Carruthers. So your grandmother wrote music that ended up being an Esther Williams film, one of them. Yeah. When I met you, you had, I believe, just been very involved in the making of the TV movie, The Alamo. I think it was a miniseries, wasn't it, with Alex Baldwin? Yes. What was your part in that? Because I associate that with you. You know, it's a lot of writing and what? packaging of actors and everything. Yeah. Drafts of the script as it came from the writer, getting the notes from the network and et cetera. So Jack went with us on all of these <laughs> wonderful workshops and we met all of these terrific students and the object for those students, they were so, I don't think they realized how honored they were, how privileged the information was that we gave them because the very person that a screenwriter needs to get to is a director of development and his whereabouts is kept a great secret from the general public because they don't want bothered with a novice writer who just simply takes up their time and generally is not ready to jump in as a pro. 
and they just deal with prose. So it's a very coveted position, actually. You had something to do with um, a, a miniseries that Marley Matlin and Lee Remick was in, too, and it had to do with the word silence. I can't think of the name of it, Jack. What was that? Bridge to Silence. Bridge to Silence, yes. That was a CBS movie. And again, did that come to you as a full package, and then you went to, did you pitch it to the network, or how did that? Um, yes. How did you get the script? Treatment written by a writer, a lady writer. And um, it was a good, it was a good treatment, but what we presented to the network to sell it. And they said, yes, I like yeah, the concept. And then you, uh, yeah. at that then we point, had to write the script ourselves. What did you do then? You hire a writer, <laughs> right? You hire a writer to come in and write from that treatment and develop it. Yes, it was in that particular case, the ladies who had written the treatment, they're brought in to write a first draft screenplay. And so this is where the director of development comes in. He begins to shepherd the whole thing and put the whole thing together very much as a producer, right? Right. Okay. Now that's the way the studio system was and the network was. Now let's go on and talk about Steve. Yeah, hi. This is Steve Young. Now Steve's in Hawaii and uh, you have a website that is mm -hmm. for screenwriters yes. and you have a movie actually in development but it's an online type you explain it i can't do it obviously i don't want to really want to spend my a lot of time i guess a lot of years of my life developing a movie or producing a movie so i am producing my own little novels i think i talked about this to you before a little i, I call them scrivellas which are half scripts half not novels and half comic books or so i've basically got you know one and one third of story that i'm just pushing out there to the public that i'm producing on my own and selling them directly to the public without having to go through the entire movie studio system because it takes so long to you know to actually you know to produce a movie and i don't want to spend a decade or so doing that i just want to move on from one to the one thing to the next the next that's what i'm doing right now i i used to be a screenwriter at one time a very okay. minor case S yeah. screen for when it comes to a screenwriter. Right, more... right, Steve, Steve, let me just stop you one second, honey. Yeah. Very quickly, touch on what you did in Hollywood, because that's a story on itself. But make it brief, because if you will, because I, I want to get to everybody, and we're actually going to have a point here in a minute, but it'll all come together. Well, you know, I, I flew up from, um, I guess, to L.A., from Hawaii to I guess, become a screenwriter. And I was an aspiring screenwriter at that time. You were how about, old? How old were you? Um, I was about 19 or 20 years old at that there time. I think I was about 19 years old. And uh, through meeting the right people, I got a pinky into the door. I, I got an agent. I got a lot of uh, opportunities to write. And um, it, it just, it didn't fit for me. Um, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be, to be stuck in to, inside of these uh, television screenwriting rooms or, or whatever they call them and I so I started to just find myself more involved with the independent world you know that was a lot more uh I guess uh alluring to me because I could just write from my home I could go outside and bike I could do all of these things so I worked with a lot of independent producers or a lot of other people who wanted to work outside of the studio system and at that time the independent uh I guess movie industry was pretty much laughed at and I was okay with that um, because I was still getting paid. 
So um, that's where I made my a lot of my living right there, just writing, uh, I guess, trying to push, uh, working with producers, trying to, uh, trying to develop scripts into movies and getting paid through these multiple step deals, which eventually I would you know, get fired because they would always find a better screenwriter than me. And I was, uh, and I was basically okay with that because as long as I could get my, get my bills paid and then go outside and bike, I was fine with it. And then I just finally figured, you know, I'm going to go on my own and produce my own things. And uh, that, that's what happened. I came back to Hawaii and ended up producing some TV shows down here. And then I said, oh, you know, more entrepreneurs. I'll just start, start like, you know, going into business rather than you know, the entertainment thing. So I, I wanted to, I want to tell you something funny that Don Gold yeah. knows about. When Don Gold and I, he was uh, at first UPM and then later became producer on Chips and I, I was just production coordinator and he can, he can affirm that I did not have a clue what I was doing. I didn't even know what a production coordinator was supposed to do. Anyway, we had this, this writer who was, I'm not going to say his name, Donald, but you know who I mean. He couldn't write. Uh, he was so personable and he looked like a writer. He even had the black turtleneck sweater and jeans. He had the uniform and he couldn't write. And he, they, uh, they assigned one of the girls to be his secretary and she used to come in and she would say to me, look at this. I have to rewrite it because he doesn't know how to make a sentence. And I said, I know, but he gets the big bucks and you don't. And she said, but I can't let it go out like that. All right. So I said to Don one time, how does he keep getting jobs? Let me tell you how that worked. I'm going to call him George because that's so far from his real name. He won't even know who I'm talking about. George was very personable. As I say, he looked like a writer. He talked like a writer. He was just the nicest kid. So he gets hired. He can't write. So he eventually, pretty soon, gets fired. But on that credit... Yeah, he wrote, he wrote on, uh, on a network show on that credit and the fact he's personable and the fact he has the black turtleneck sweater and the blue jeans, put it all together. He gets hired by another studio for another series and then he gets fired. But because of that credit added to the first one he had, he just goes on and on and on. And that personable kid with the black sweater continues to get jobs as a writer even though he couldn't write i've told that story in our workshops i think that's hilarious because if you look like a writer and you fit in you're going to get a crack at it uh, whether or not you know you're going to stay in it is another thing but really quick steve mm. you've got to tell everybody that wonderful michael jackson story make it brief but tell us how you came to be at never never land as michael jackson's writer that didn't happen oh boy you put me on the spot here i know i um, love it oh boy okay i was going to keep his name off the record there. <laughs> That's okay, too good. So, yeah. all right so um it's very interesting because um one of my um uh well, part of what I was doing when I was up there in California was that I was actually a, a very good biker. So I would do all of these stunt bike tricks on top of the curbs and I would do shows for people as well uh, for exhibition shows for um, for um, bike companies. I wasn't sponsored, but um, I would have performed the, these uh, bike, bike, I guess, stunt tricks on cars, on picnic tables, on all these different types of things in front of stores. And while I was practicing in front of my house, um, this little kid came up to me and he, he started to really enjoy what I was doing. And he says, wow, you know, this is really, really great. And this kid 
you know, told me what his uncle did. And uh, he said, well, you know, my uncle works in the entertainment industry too. And he taught Michael Jackson how to dance. And of course I told him, well, that's really nice, you know, and I, I don't believe him at all. <laughs> and then a few days later, his uncle stops by and his name is uh, Bruno Falcon or Poppin' Taco. And he was one of the top break dancers way back in the day. He actually created what they call popping. So when you ever hear King of Pop, because Michael Jackson, that's the type of form, form of dancing that he does. Bruno Falcon, Poppin' Taco, is the one who taught him how to dance. <laughs> and then here, here is Poppin' Taco right in front of me. And I knew who he was. And I said, oh, my God, you're like Poppin' Taco. And then we started, uh, uh, you know, we started to talk and we became really good friends. And uh, he was still working for Michael at that time. And he uh, basically put me into one of his uh, independent productions. And at that time, I think um, uh, Michael had actually optioned off the Edgar Allan Poe thing or something like that. I forgot what it was. And he says, well, you got this. He got this uh, option to, to uh, I guess, um, you know, uh, to, to do Ed, uh, Edgar Allan Poe projects. And I said, okay. And he asked, well, do you want to write work on it? And I said, yeah, sure. That's great. You know, um, so he, we, uh, I got to meet, well, I'm not, I'm still not sure if I got to meet Michael Jackson. So I got to meet a person. Well, wait, and, now, uh, you, you, skip, you skipped something. So okay. you went to Never Never Land and they showed, they gave you this little cottage that you went into and, and you saw all these fabulous grounds, but you hadn't met Michael Jackson. And then one day there's a knock at your door. Is that right? No, no, no. Well, I want to skip over close? I want to I want to skip over some of the parts why I went to Never Never Land Ranch. So I'm, not, I'm not talking about why. Okay, go uh, ahead. Yeah, so it's it's a why like uh, but um, I I went there. I got to end up staying over there. He, I mean, never the Neverland Ranch is huge, and um, so we 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 went there, and at the same time we got I got to meet a person who he said, well, he said we're gonna go meet with Michael and talk about this project. So we met with you know this person who I thought was Michael Jackson. And I treated him like a very normal person. And in my mind, I said, this can't be Michael Jackson because he's, he looks really strange. He looks really weird. I mean, it, look, it looked as though it was an impersonator who was trying to be Michael Jackson and his voice was very low. And, and um, at the end, after the meeting, you know, Bruno says, well, most people are in awe of Michael Jackson and here you are treating him like a normal dude. I said, when are we going to, well, when are we going to meet Michael Jackson? And he said, no, you, you just met him. <laughs> I said what like really that, that guy looks weird you like that right <laughs> so uh that was you know, my encounter with him and then I met him a couple more times after that and uh till this very day I'm still not sure if that was Michael or not because uh he looked really bad um it, I mean it looked I mean his eyes were really big his nose was really tiny his I mean he, he just did not look like the Michael Jackson that I envisioned all my life and um but Bruno to this day told me he's told me that yeah that was Michael and uh but I'm not what happened, sure what happened really to happened. the project? Oh, no, nothing ever happened because all of the lawsuits that he was involved with, and he got he got he just got completely sidetracked uh, with everything. So um, nothing ever ever happened with it. We did work on a we did work on a few of these projects for him that had nothing to do with the Edgar Allan Poe project. It was just it was just kind of weird concepts like where there was a being called Zod, and it was made out made out of little children, and they would assemble to create this god figure which was, which was called Zod, which was kind of weird but um oh that, that's what happens I, I still have his notes in a little folder here to this very day but um nothing really ever happened to it nothing uh, and see what happened was that nobody really wanted to work with michael um back then yeah uh, because of his target you know, this was after the first sexual allegation so no one really wanted to touch michael I mean, he was already without a record contract i think sony had already dropped him it was it was really sad 
It was really, really sad. Um, I'm not sure if those allegations are true or not. He was very, very nice to me. I mean, he allowed me to stay on the ranch um, through some uh, really troubled times. So, uh, and I, that's why I don't really want to get into, you know, the, you know, those those areas and, and everything. So, um, no, I said do this quickly because yeah. the point being, aside yeah. from that being a kind of an amusing story, an interesting story, is that as Jack and Don can tell you, Hollywood's a very small community. And everybody knows somebody like you met him through a kid who knew the uncle who knew Michael Jackson. Everything comes about like that. It really is or was a kind of who you know, but not on the cocktail party circuit, not like that. On a who you who you meet just the way you met the, the poppin' guy. It's it was not hard to get into the industry. It was hard to stay in the industry for some people. I think so much of it, and Don and Jack, don't you think so much of it had to do with luck, just luck, because the most talented people, once I got in the studio, and I never waited a table, or I was only there, what, a week or two, and I got in, and I didn't know a soul, and that was just a fluke, but once I got in, and I saw all the talent that couldn't even get in, I realize that the world is awash in talent, and it truly has to do with who you just run across, who takes to you, and you've got your foot in the door. And if you behave yourself, you, you can you can stay there in some capacity or other. Do you agree with that, Don and and uh, and Jack? Yeah, actually, when you realize that the motion picture business is basically a business of personality. Yes. You can do so much with just personality and without talent. And if you have talent to go along with it, then you can go a long way. Yeah, and then if you have a black turtleneck shirt or sweater, <laughs> you can be a writer. Exactly. Yeah. All right, now, let me, let me introduce All right, so before I leave Steve, so Steve, now... You are, I've seen your artwork. It isn't yours. You hired somebody or a friend is doing it, but it's great artwork that you're doing for this, whatever it is. You keep sending it to me and I keep looking at it and I appreciate it. And I don't know what the devil it is. And I'm not sure what you're going to do with it, but you know, I wish you well. And you'll probably succeed at whatever it is that I can't figure out right now. But people should go to your website. So tell them where you want, direct people where you want them to go if they'd like to know more about you. Um, they can go to scriptwritersteve.com uh -huh. and that's script with a T. Uh, so that's uh, S-C-R-I-P-T, writer, and then steve.com. So they okay. can head right there. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what Jack and Don will, will go crazy over if they should go there is that you don't know anything about commas. You think they come in a bag just to be thrown out like, you know, fairy dust. You, you don't know a thing about commas. And so reading your stuff makes me insane. Uh, but that's okay, because that's you. And that's what you don't want involved with are the sticky little details that make you crazy. And the sticky little details are, if they're missing, are what make Jack and Don and myself insane. So you all would have a great three-way session, believe me. We could, we could have a whole six hours, a mini-series just on that. 
because it was once you got your break, if you call it a break in Hollywood, it really helped if you did have a, a degree of knowledge about what you're doing. Because so often the people right beside you don't have the knowledge. And if you have it, you're one step ahead of them. And so you get to stay in, in line there. Anyway, we all, we don't know what you're doing, but I do know this. I do know you represent the new way of doing things. Um, Jeff Evans, he's been an actor for a very, very long time. His voice, you may have heard his voice on um, in umpteen places over a period of years. He's been in films, he's been on TV. He was one of the deputies, this is where I probably get it wrong, on In the Heat of the Night for six episodes. Jeff, stop me now if I got yeah, that Yeah, I'll wrong stop too. you right there. Okay. Uh, I, don't know how I'm, I don't know how I'm going to follow Steve's story, but... Um, <laughs> None of us could follow yeah, Steve. You know, I don't know anybody uh, to that caliber. But anyway, no, I was on the doctor's staff uh, on the heat of the night. So anytime there's a hospital scene, I was in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I, I did have the, the pleasure of working with Carol O'Connor and some of those guys. It, it, was, it was a real treat for me. Uh, yeah, I started acting late. I was 39 when I got my first acting job. And it was because my kids had grown up and didn't need me anymore to drive the car. So uh, <laughs> I had I had all this newfound resource time on my hands and uh, decided what better thing to do after 40 years in the IT industry than to find something entirely different. So uh, I used acting on the side, uh, primarily theater to begin with, and then migrated to film and and uh, 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 commercials and things like that. And at the time, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, industrial work was huge. I did a lot of hazmat uh, commentaries for various businesses and things like that. And it really wasn't until I got to Florida that I got, that I got involved with quite a few of the independent films, uh, a lot of student films. We have Full Sail University down here, which is a huge film school, uh, along with UCF, who has a good film school. So uh, I've been doing a lot of that down here as well. But um, like I said, when I first got into it, it was, uh, it was primarily theater. But acting, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this, theater acting and film acting is is 180 degrees, 180 degrees different. As we're uh, finding out, because I'm having a hard time finding good voiceover talent, because everybody comes out of theater and they want to act and we can't allow them to act and be on our programs. Right? Yeah, you know, it, it's I've always been an advocate of whether you're theater or film, you're telling a story and, and it comes down to that. And, and you have to, the, I guess what drives a uh, the dramaticism, if that's such a word, uh, of a theater actor is you've got that live audience and you feel that like you really have to sometimes beat them over the head, where in film, I think it's more of a subtle environment. And usually the script, I believe the script drives a story in film that maybe even more so in theater. Well, one of the things we wanted to know from you is what you expect from a screenwriter. When you open a script, you need certain tools. And this is what Don and I went out across the country and Jack went out to tell aspiring screenwriters is that a script is nothing but a user's manual. That's all it is. And it's, it's written in crew speak. And there is something that's expected in every line in a screenplay and it's for a member of the crew. And as long as you know who you're talking to and what they need to know, if you have even a halfway decent idea of a story, uh, you're probably going to get it right. But you are, it's not, you don't care about the dappled lighting. That's for a novelist. You yeah, care you know, when, about, pardon when me. You, yeah, when you asked me the question, you said, hey, what's the one thing 
that you look for in a script. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's an interesting question in that if I ask five different people that question who are actors, I'd probably get five different answers. Mm. Well, I was wrong. I, I solicited uh, four of my acting friends and just sent them an email. And I said, what's the one thing that you look for in a good script? And a young lady that I've worked here down here is an actor, writer, director. I've done two of her films. So I asked her that. And she came back with the following. She says, I want believable dialogue that rolls off the tongue. Uh, she said, as an actor, there's nothing more annoying than having to adjust or rewrite dialogue to make it sound natural. So then I, I sent it off to another uh, fellow actress, uh, actor, and she said, what's most important to me is that the script makes sense and the character's conversation flows naturally. So we're getting back to the same uh, same issue. Mm -hmm. speedy, speedy Arnold, who's an actor up in, uh, who's done film and television up in uh, Georgia, says, I need the words of the character and the description of the character i.e. the background, to help me make it the best character that I can. David Razor, who I've done a lot of stuff, and he and I are currently working on a small, uh, this is the one that I told you about, Esther, a couple, about a year ago that we haven't really got off the ground, which was going to be a, uh, an episodic that we'd like to put up. But he said, I really love a script where the characters are real and not too much dialogue. So he's a little bit the other side. But when it's posed to me personally, the first two things I thought about was that dialogue has to be simple, it has to be to the point, and it has to be as though you're sitting at a table talking to a friend of yours. It has to be that natural. Now, having said that, I did a show called Art, and it's written from the standpoint of two professors, uh, a very high intellectual dialogue. However, it's written in a manner that every word is absolutely understood at a high school level. It's amazing how that's written. So it flows beautifully, but you're using big words, but it doesn't matter because it flows so easily. Now, I saw a show a couple of weeks ago or last week called Wit, W-I-T, that mm -hmm. was written by a Nobel, Prize, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, and it was written way above my head. Now, I'm not a smart guy, but it's way above my head. And I had a hard time following it. It's a 90 minute one act. And it wasn't until the last 20 or 25 minutes that I actually caught on to what was going on. I found that a little bit of a drudge to get through that. But the other thing, other than dialogue, the one other thing I look for in a script or would like to have from a screenwriter is every actor I believe needs a backstory of the character that they're doing. Absolutely. You have to, you have to establish a, an attitude even before you throw that first line out there. Uh, I was in a production of 12 Angry Men. And one of the things we 12 did is sat down together around the table and said, okay, everybody make up your backstory because there is no backstory information. I played the part of a bigot. Well, yeah, you're a bigot, but why are you a bigot? Mm -hmm. So when you take time to build those backstories, even if it's just a short bio, the actor has a way of bringing the very first line of that script into focus about why that person is who he is. And I think that's probably the two most important things, easy dialogue, or at least a dialogue that flows easily and uh, having a reason to be saying those words or maybe the attitude surrounding your uh, line delivery. Oh, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> there was a, an exercise that we did in our screenwriting workshops where you take one line and uh, we had the students write a piece of dialogue around that one line, say it as a farmer would say it, say it as a school teacher, high school teacher would say it, say it as a housewife would say it, say it as a grandmother who is an immigrant here from a foreign country would say it, same line. 
And this shocked everybody because they never thought about a line coming from so many perspectives. And that I think one of the biggest failings of aspiring screenwriters, I shouldn't say failings, one of the biggest challenges is to stop, as Don used to say, don't write the King's English. We don't speak in King's English. Remember saying that, Donna? That's correct. Let me introduce one more person. This is Kira Robinoff. Her writing is so intelligent. She writes in such a way that reaches you. What can you tell us in just a few words about each of your three novels? The one about your grandmother, the one about your father, and then the one about you. Uh, well, I mean, I should also just tell you that my background before I started writing books is actually in film and theater, much more than, than novel or, or memoir writing. So, I mean, Red Winter is a story of my grandmother who uh, lost her husband in the Russian, Russian Revolution and had to uh, struggle to survive a winter with five young children, a, a mother-in-law and a, an epileptic sister-in-law. His story is my father's story, which starts in, in that same time period. Uh, he was one of the children. <laughs> Well, I mean, his world is constantly being overturned by world events. Uh, and um, you were born where? I was born in New York, um, New York City, uh, and lived here most of my life. And you're still there? I'm still here. <laughs> anyway, okay. Now, now that everybody knows everyone's background and what everybody is doing, let's address ourselves to, and we'll do it orderly, who would like to ask the first question of somebody else in our group? with regard to film today or in the past? Oh, okay. I'll, I'll ask the first question. Okay. Uh, what do we think of superhero movies? Uh. <laughs> I think that probably has a lot to do with the generation in which we've come up in. I know a lot of the stuff I like is uh, Hitchcock or black and white uh, dialogue-driven shows, uh, for instance, Strangers on a Train. But yeah. I'm also a big fan of The Green Mile. I, I just think that that is... You know, my wife won't watch it because it's too intense. But if you just stop and listen to the wonderful lines in that, uh, Shawshank Redemption probably has the most quoted lines uh, of any film that I know of. Uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, I, I stay away from films that do too much digitizing. Uh, I'm not a big fan of green screen. I, now, don't get me wrong. I love Les Mis and that whole opening scene is on a green screen. And, and I'm not adverse to that. And I like to see a car blow up once in a while. But I, generally, uh, I, I'm more in the, uh, the, the old style mainstream, I guess. But I think a lot of that has to do with our age groups and our, our generation. It could be. But don't forget, our action heroes were Superman and Batman and the Invisible Man. You know, we had our superheroes, and I remember all the objections. I didn't read the comic books because Mother just thought they were trash and uh, they were, that they were violent. She didn't go on a rampage about it. It's just, you know, no, nah, you don't want to read that. And I didn't. But certainly everybody else was doing it. Yeah, but what was funny with our Superman, George Reeves, you could actually see him hanging from the wires. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think that has to do with generation. Uh, I think he... What you have to understand with movies is movies are made to make money. Exactly. And whatever makes money, that's what they will make. And today, when you realize that the 
movie going public is usually 15 to 25 or 30 years old. These superhero, crazy, wild movies are what people go to see. And so that's why they're making them. Oh, absolutely, Don. Matter of fact, that uh, we say one thing in theater when we choose our scripts, you got to consider the audience. Who are yeah. you playing this to? Uh, yeah, but guys, you're missing a big point. Huh? Uh, I remember uh, there were people out here, for instance, Steve doesn't know who, who Hal Wallace is. And there may wow. be, you know, uh, many people listening to us who don't know what a powerhouse he was in movie making, one of the most powerful, powerful producers in Hollywood. So he comes to me to, to find his last script. He wants to do one big hoorah before he goes. And I'm looking diligently for this last script that the great Hal Wallace can come back and do a film on. And he said to me, don't forget, Esther, there's always an audience for junk. Junk will make money because the audience is not discriminating. But you try to make a good movie, an excellent movie. Now you've got a discriminating audience. And if you've got dialogue that's off, if you've got sound that's off, lighting that's off, acting that's off, any one facet, you've just made a flop. But your, your junk, they're not discriminating. You could have bad actors, bad lighting, bad everything. But if you keep them entertained, they'll come. They'll pack the audience. So it behooves the producer to do junk, which is why he said he hadn't done a picture in 20 years. But that is true. Now, what's happened, I fully believe, is that used to families would go to the movies on Friday nights, Saturdays, Sunday afternoons, all through 30s and 40s, 50s even. That was the big deal. Started changing in the 60s. But as we began turning out less and less quality films we got rid of quality audiences which left us pretty much with the entire the whole w-h-o-l-e of a segment of society and that segment has been conditioned to to go see movies that are more action than thought the others are staying away they don't go to movies anymore so while you say, okay, we're playing to, to the public, the movies created their own public. And there's a whole backstory to that that would make a podcast in itself. And Don and Jack and everybody knows that story, but how it came to be that way. But that's the way it is today. So they're not looking to make Rebecca. They're not looking to make uh, what's another great quality film. They're not looking to make that because they won't have an audience. Does that make sense? No, but that's basically what we were saying. Yeah. You I said it, but shorter. Movies go where the money is, period. Well, I think movie making is much different now because the way the studios think now is um, that they're not only making a movie, they're also making you know, a franchise to sell toys, to sell backpacks, to sell you know, video games, to also sell rides. You know, um, it used to <clears> be the, the, the Marvel did. comic. Yeah, the Marvel comic universe, right? The, the Marvel cinematic universe is no longer, I mean, you have Iron Man out there, but he's also now a Halloween costume. He's also a ride over there in Disneyland. Um, he's a lot more things than just a movie. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to sell these characters and they're just, they're, they're much more the money-making, like what, what Don had said, 
the money-making opportunities are, are just much more widespread. Wait, uh, uh, Steve, uh, Steve uh, Kira has been trying to say something for about the last 10 minutes. Kira. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I mean, that's where cable comes in, you know, and they have, you, you know, you can really find a niche audience through some of, of the, the movies that are presented there. I, um, it gives me a little bit of hope because I agree. I, I'm not a, a fan of any of these popular, so to speak, movies. But I was up upstate for a couple of weeks this summer, and we had we could only stream Netflix and Amazon. And you'd be surprised how many great films we were able to find that were perfect for for me, and clearly have an audience, just not a mainstream one. New movies or old? Well, no, both. Not necessarily. Both. You got to understand the new platforms now that we see motion pictures on is so different from what it used to be. They make motion pictures now and they spend a great deal of money on them and they appear on streaming. And they can do this because a streaming network can make $200 million a month from people who get these get that particular platform on their, in their home. They pay $10 a month or $15 a month. And if you have 100 million people <laughs> who have signed up to this platform, they don't have to worry about box office or anything else. They can make a picture for $50 million. It doesn't make any difference. But, you know, I saw uh, not too long ago, I was looking at the top grossing films of the year and the top five of the top five two were actually uh made independently and cost around ten thousand dollars they were done on phones and they were the top grossing i found that very interesting don because we used to talk about you could make a million dollar picture and we know people that have done it and they can make it look like at that time 15 million was a very decent budget for a film they can make it look like that. Now they're taking these iPhones and they're turning out movies that people are paying into these, what you're calling platforms, paying into these programs to watch. And so they're just raking in tons of money. Uh, Jack, weigh in on this. Tell us what you think about what we're talking about now. Well, I, what, I, what I was thinking when you all were talking about star system, I mean, because it's a completely different era, of course, today. And, and there aren't really stars. I was going to say, does anybody watch the Academy Awards here anymore? I don't. And I never missed them from the time I was 10 years old until the last four years. I never missed. Me uh, too. Fewer every year watching them. I don't know who the people are, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, and, no, that's true with the Emmys as well, because again, oh, with all the streaming, you don't know the programs. And, know and they when are. they give an award to a show, you don't know what the show is or who the people are. Patrick, you took my screenwriting class at U, UMKC. Wasn't it UMKC where you took my class? I sure did, yeah. About 13 years ago? It was 15? more than that. It was yeah. more like it was 15, 16 years ago. 16. Good grief. I know uh, they used to fly me in from L.A. Uh, once a year. In February, the coldest month they could find to fly me into Missouri from comfortable California. Mm -hmm. And I'd give an all-day screenwriting class. And there you were in it one day. Now, I assumed 
that you were going to become a screenwriter. So why did you take that class 15 years ago and you go into finance and you're enormously successful in that field? What did you want to do or still want to do? Oh, it's what I still want to do is definitely write for screen. And the, the conversation previously about writing good dialogue, that's, that's where I feel like I do, I do relatively well. And part of it was because of a lesson that we learned in that screenwriting class. And you had, and we mentioned this earlier or recently because I passed it on to someone else as if it were my idea, but it was actually your idea to, uh, to sit by people having a conversation and, and write a transcript of it. That's yeah. the only way to really capture natural conversation, but it's it's a way to tell the stories that are in my head, and I would love to write for screen. Ultimately, my my first uh, novel about the imaginary friends, I want to get to screen more than anything, but I still see it as a way to be creative and tell stories, and and that part of my life isn't isn't here yet, but it will be. What what audience are you trying to reach? Are you going to reach the today audience? Is going for the action heroes, or and let me let me throw this in. The reason I created Mojave Beach Productions is I wanted to be the PBS of podcasting. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to think quality and, and Mojave Beach Productions all in one thought. I'm not going to go after an audience because it's popular or because I think a lot of people will come or because we'll make money. I just want to do excellent programs. And I don't care if only two people see it. I know you all don't agree with that. <laughs> You'd like more people to see our programs. But I'm not going to change that. We're, we're going to go for entertainment, enlightenment, inspiration, yeah. and just plain old good entertainment. But who is it good entertainment to? Well, but if you build it, they will come. I mean, we, you, you create the quality entertainment. You do well, and people will come to it, even if it's not what they're used to. Lo, your own will come to you is what it has to amount to. I got to mm -hmm. tell you, everything I do, Steve hates. He just hates. He played something that we did for his grandma. She said, turn it off. Turn it off. I can't stand it. Turn it off. That's grandpa <laughs> now. And you know what? He's right. We aren't where we're going to be. But we do have an audience and, and it will continue to build. But I'm not going to pander to a particular audience just because it's popular. And that doesn't always make me very popular. But going back to you, Patrick, what do you want to see in a movie? You've got children. You've got a teenager. You've got uh, young adult children. You've got uh, Emma is now 11, isn't she? She 11? Ella. Ella just, Ella just turned 10. Uh, Ella. Two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah okay. okay. What I want to see in a movie is very simple. It's all about the storytelling. And I don't care if it's oh. a... I don't care if it's a, a serialized program, if it's a, a streaming special on Netflix or for the country song, I'm looking for the story. And that's one thing, the very basic element that a lot of entertainment misses the boat on is focusing on the story because they're too focused on the character or the idea. I mean, how many, how many good movies have you seen that starts with a wonderful premise, but they just couldn't go anywhere with it? And that's what's disappointing. You, you, you're not just in it for the tagline. You want to see a well-developed story with all three acts in good order and you feel good afterwards. Or, Very simple, well, but it's hard to come, it's hard to come by. Steve, is that yeah. necessarily true in today's audience, you think? I, I really do think, I, re I really agree wholeheartedly with Patrick, what he's saying there. I mean, the audiences are, I mean, right now I think the audience is just looking to be entertained, but they have no idea what makes a good story or what makes, you know, or why they're getting entertained or how it's actually happening. I mean, I, I always feel that, 
if you do your job well as a screenwriter or director or anything, your, your talent should go unnoticed. They should leave the theater or finish reading the book or whatever it is just by saying, wow, that was a great movie. That was a great whatever it is, right? Yep. And they have no idea. They're not going to say that's great directing. That's, not a, that's great screenwriting. Yeah. You know, those are the only things for us to, you know, to, exactly. to critique, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when you really know you've really done your job well is because you've basically taken that audience, put them in another world, and they accept that fictional, I guess, world as reality. And they're coming out there just saying, this is just great. And they can, you know, take the characters, you know, debate the character's motivation on the side, uh, debate, you know, debate the, the decision-making that the characters went through. And it's, again, it's all fiction. But it, the, the one thing which I don't like right now about movie making is that it's agenda driven and that gets you know that takes storytelling and into a new whole new direction right now which i don't like i love superhero movies by the way i think i'm the only one here who loves superhero movies oh no, <laughs> you're I the do. youngest i do and what i was going to say was that some of the best storytelling yeah. is from some of the marvel cinematic universe and that's i will fight you thank you <laughs> i will thank fight you. you on that yeah thank you all right i got patrick in my corner okay right? there you go Superman, the, the modern day Superman, right? We're not talking the old Superman, right? I mean, even Jeff, you, did you like the new Superman? I, yeah, well, I got through Christopher Reeves, but I haven't seen anything after that. Oh, um, so you're making a judgment call without even no, seeing No, no, not necessarily. No, <laughs> uh, no I, my, my daughter uh, and uh, her kids uh, who are now in their teens, they, they love the, the, uh, the uh, superhero movies. Uh, I, I guess part of my ignorance is I haven't sat down and, and, and sat through one. And, and so I'm not being totally objective with that. But since I know what I like, I don't know that I would. I guess I just need to uh, say that the jury is still out. Let right, me pose a question. Down. I need to tie Jeff down. <laughs> you need to watch Wonder Woman or Iron what? Man. Or oh, my Iron gosh. I tell you what I did like, though. I did like uh, Galaxy Quest. Um, and I know that's not superheroes, but that that's a great sci-fi film for me. <laughs> that's oh funny. yeah. You know what's really fun is is that when you're in a position to watch people succeed, you really know that 99% of everything they've tried failed. Maybe that's just me. 99% of everything I do fails. But people only see what succeeds. They don't really know how how much you have to keep just going, keeping yourself motivated. Let, let me ask each of you a question. Let's take this one by one and all of you tell me, if you were talking to somebody who comes to you and says, Jeff, Patrick, Don, Jack, um, Steve, I wanna be a, a filmmaker more than anything in this world and I wanna write my own screenplays. How in the world do I get started? Now, let me preface this. Don and Jack can tell you that in the old days, there certainly was a one, two, three formula for doing. Now, wouldn't, I'm not saying that if you follow the formula, you're going to succeed. You might follow the formula and what you have just isn't going to make it or you're not going to make it. And boy, do I have stories on that one? And we all do, but I won't bother you with that right now. I'll just say there is no longer a one, two, three, boom you at least have a crack at it. It isn't there. The reason it isn't there is because everything is scattered all over the board anymore. It isn't a studio system. So now go back to the original question. Mm -hmm. Gee, how do I 
get started. What would you tell them, Don? Here's the thing. Somebody would come to me with a question like that. In today's world, there's really only, if you're starting from scratch, if you don't know anybody, then the only thing you can do is write your own script, raise your own money, make the movie, and hope some distributor will buy it. I had a friend who wanted to make a motion picture, and he was in the business, and he had a script. And he said he can't get financing, so he put his home up as collateral and borrowed against his home, Oof. and he made his movie. And he lost his home, and he lost all the money. We're talking about someone off the street who okay. says, I want to make a movie, I want to be a filmmaker. Well, you start very small, with a very small idea, and you raise the money by going to friends, relatives, uh, by refinancing your house, whatever you have to do. And you make your movie. And then if the movie is good, you try to get a, a distributor. Very difficult to get a distributor because they have to put up money to uh, distribute a film. And you know, you need uh, advertising, you need prints. It's a very, very difficult thing to do that. And usually <clears throat> a script like that will not be very good. And you know, the actors you get are not gonna be very good. So it's not, it's a, such a long shot that uh, it's all, you wanna say to the guy, invest in a gas station or something, but don't, don't try to invest in a movie. No, but you know, a lot of people like Lithium Springs. He would Carter Lord when he finished his picture, he finished his first picture and went to the Cannes Film Festival. And that was a fluke that he was able to open there, but it was stolen by the European market. It just got stolen from him. He was so depressed he did make another movie for 10 years. And then he made Lithium Springs. And it was it was really not done well that first time at all. He couldn't get a distributor. So he went the film festival route. And this is what I would say for anyone who wants to make a movie today on a little bitty shoestring, go the film festival route. Some yeah, pictures- It's not that easy, Fester. Uh -huh. Film festivals don't take every movie that's- No, they don't. Uh-oh, nope. It's a very difficult thing, unless it's a really a high quality or very unusual film, they're not gonna take it. No, but I've been involved in about a dozen films that went that route. And it was all the exposure they got, but they made their, they got their money back, believe it or not. Uh, they got a lot of awards. Uh, some places turn them down, the next place they get an award. It's hit or miss, but it's one of the, it's easier than trying to get a distributor because you can waste a lot of years yeah. just trying to find a distributor who will even talk to you. It's true. You know, I agree with you, Don. I did a film about 15 years ago it was a, of the horror a genre about 15 years ago called Dark Remains. And the the, uh, the producer, uh, the director, all one guy, it was he, he and his wife, they made they maxed out two credit cards. And we shot that thing in 90 days because he borrowed all the equipment. And uh, it was one of the first films that he uh, had done in HD, and he borrowed an HD camera. 
And the guy who owned it says, you can have it for 90 days, then I got to have it back. So he shot like 200 hours of film on this camera. And he ended up getting it uh, sold uh, uh, on a DVD, went straight to DVD with it. It went to Europe, then came back and got hit up on uh, Netflix for a short run. And I think as a supporting actor, I was in exactly half that film. And I think I ended up with about $1,000. Uh, and I know the, the other actors did better than that, but it was featured in Fangora magazine, which is a, a nationally published horror magazine. So he's done pretty well. And he's made four or five horror films that same way. But you're right, Don. It's uh, it's tough. Boy, you could just tell this guy was getting frazzled out towards the end. And where was he going to get his next buck? It, it, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. It All right. Let's go to uh, is Jack with us yet? I'm having, my sound thing is not um, I, I'm stable uh, still. It's, like, yeah, I hear it pinging. You want to try this, though? We're saying if somebody comes to you and says, I, I want to make a film, how, where do I begin? How do I start? What would you say to him? I'd say don't start. I would don't not be mortgaging hobby. my house. Patrick? Do your, do your homework. Do your research. No one goes Pollyanna into the industry because they've got this neat story and they're, it's all going to happen for them. So you've got to know what you're up against and finally have the product that will that you are absolutely sure that you will stay up all night and that you will never rest until it gets made or else it's not worth the effort. Otherwise, you're making a movie to make a movie and it's not going to get done. And anyone who will have the money and have the patience for you can see the passion will get behind it as well. But if, that, if you don't have that project that garners that kind of support and passion from others, you're, you're, a, you're a science experiment waiting to happen. That's true. Boy, a thousand stories run through my head. Steve knows someone that I know who's been trying to get something made for, I think it's going on 20 years now. He's still taking meetings on it. You know what? We may all be surprised. One day he may actually do it. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised. 20 years. I'm, I'm not kidding. Don't you think it's been that long, Steve? You know I, I, I think it's been. About? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's been close to around 20 years. Yeah. Um, and he's still taking meetings, still trying to raise money, still he's trying very to, passionate about it. Very, very, passionate. very passionate about it. Don yep. met him. Don met him. And Don, I told you what Don's reaction was when when I suggested the guy go to Hollywood and have breakfast with Don Gold and talk about it. And this was this was 20 years ago. Don called me and he said he'll never do it. He doesn't have the fire in the belly. So there's a difference between having fire in the belly to get a project done and having an ego that says, I want to get this done and I'm not going to give up. There's a, mm. there's a difference and it's hard to define. Well, with our mutual friend, the problem with him, I think, is that he's not treating it like a business. I mean, making a film is the equivalent to me, at least, of starting a business. And you have to go in there realistically. You have to be willing to commit you know, big portion of your life, maybe five years, 10 years, you know, possibly even 20 years to getting this film, whatever you are, you know, creating, you know, made. And that's a very, very big portion, you know, of, of a person's life. And, um, you know, if a person is willing to do that and willing to, you know, again, sacrifice, you know, that their best years of their life, sometimes like one storyline, then all the power to them. But if they enter into that arena, they just have to know, you know, you know, treat it like a business and treat it, you know, be very wise with your money. Well, yeah. And I think you also have to be very honest with yourself. When you analyze what you have and say, 
is this really good enough to make it? And there are so many people that cannot be honest with themselves. And they just look at everything through rose-colored glasses, and it just doesn't work. You know, but you know, we hear the stories. Here, here's what makes what you're saying difficult for some people to accept. We know the stories where people were told this will never work, and one of them is gone with the wind. This will never, never work. Uh, Anne-Marie Gillen used to go with us some of, some of our workshops, and she exec produced fried green well, tomatoes. Yeah, the Gone with the Wind was a best-selling novel. I, I remember. remember the gal at MGM. She, she retired the uh, month that I started to work, and somehow she befriended me, and she showed me a letter she had framed on her wall and she was getting ready to put it in the box. And she said, oh, well, look at this, Esther. I was in the story department when Gone with the Wind came by and they said, take a, she said, this is mine. I wrote it, take a pass on this. We've tried Civil War movies before. We did one with Dane Clark and it fizzled. And she said, I recommended they take a pass. This is what I will frame and keep until I die. <laughs> so the point is, there's always going to be somebody who'll tell you it isn't going to work. And you remember those stories. If you have these rose colored glasses, you remember the stories of people who have yeah, been told it won't work. And it went those, on to be. Those stories are anecdotal. And uh, for every one story that yeah. works, there's a thousand that don't. That's right. And the person who has these rose colored glasses are convinced they are one in a thousand. That's right. And so. Uh, be honest with themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, when we do the the workshop on being a writer, uh, that's novelist or whatever you're writing, one of the things I want us to talk about is the discipline of being a writer. How do you become, get in the business of being a writer? And we're kind of talking about that right now with screenwriting. When we gave our workshops, we were able to say, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to have a crack at it. I think the saddest thing is that because there are so many venues out there right now for showing online, just a, a, a thousand ways to see a movie, it breaks the concentration of your public as well. They're not focused as they used to be. A film was coming out from a studio. It had billboards. It had, it had radio announcements. It had everything in papers. So people were waiting anxiously for that one movie to come out and then they would flood the theaters and it was a success. We are so bombarded with information today that we don't know where to focus. So it's hard to capture the public's attention. Well, the to whole, you gotta understand the whole world of exhibition is changing and yes. changing at light speed. Yes. And nobody knows what's going to happen. The studios are terrified with all these streaming. Look what happened with um, Scarlett Johansson. She <laughs> set off a firestorm that's going to affect every single movie that's made from now on. In what way? Because when she signed her contract, she got a percentage of the exhibition of the film. But it did not say anything about television streaming. So she gets nothing from that. And that cut the, the box office exhibition 
<coughs> by at least 50%. So she is suing to get money from the streaming. Whether she does or not, I don't know. But every contract from now on, from any major star, will include streaming. It's a huge, huge but thing. I don't, I don't get this because going back about, uh, let's see, gosh, golly, I was an agent for about 15 minutes and our office was down the street from Warner Brothers. And I remember that we were rewriting all of the contracts and doing it with WGA, Writers Guild of America. And it was including everything electronic. And, and there's, there are clauses in there that say this includes anything electronic. And then it goes on and on and on. So if somebody excluded that, uh, I'm surprised yeah. because we were savvy to this years ago. Well, it's a bit is, different, though. It's a bit different, though, Esther, right now. Well, um, there are more ways you have to cover your rear end. Well, yeah, it's a bit saying. different, but it, it's really it's really difficult to calculate how much this movie, you know, technically made online because oh yeah, um, yeah, because with, with Scarlett Johansson, um, the movie Black Widow, it was one of the most anticipated movies of all time because uh, it was supposed to be released primarily just in the theaters, but then we had this pandemic that happened and then everything just shut down. And then what happened when they decided to re-release it or, or to release it again, uh, they released it half in the theaters and half on Disney plus. And, um, you know, how much money did, you know, they generate, I guess, on Disney plus, they can't really calculate that. Yeah. yeah. I it's think impossible. One, of, one of the scariest things yeah. right now is that uh, while there are more doors of opportunity open, but more places that you can get your material, that also pulls out more thieves. And the more naive you are about the business that you're in, the more that you're just a sitting duck waiting to be taken, because there are so many ways to steal your material today, so many ways. And, and, and as we're saying, there's one little clause missing in a contract. And so that meant millions of dollars for the creative artist. It's a great time for lawyers. It's a, well, <laughs> but here's the thing. Even when I was at the studio, and, and briefly I was in development, if you remember before I came over to Chips, one of the things that, that we told everybody is that you have to be on guard, you want to have a good entertainment attorney, but even going back all that time, there were only two entertainment attorneys that were trusted in the industry. And one of those was rather suspect, which only left you with one that everybody sort of said where you can trust him. So when kids come along today and they said, oh, I've got my uncle's an attorney, uh, he's going to do my contracts for me. If your uncle doesn't know the industry inside and out, your uncle is not going to be able to protect you from yeah, all of the people who know how to steal from you. Yeah, that sounds very pessimistic. But with um, but with Scarlett Johansson, it's a matter of um, I mean, she really believes, and I, and and she may have some validity to this argument is that the box office. See what happened is that Disney released, I guess, the Black Widow at the same time online as it did in the theaters. So people decided, well, I'm just going to stay home and watch it online course, rather than seeing the theaters. And then it, 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 people have said, it, 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 well, she said she, it directly affected the box office because it was a box office disappointment. And um, it was. It really, really was. But it was also a very bad movie, too. Yeah, Black it's Widow just, was a horrible movie. It was, it, it was just, 
the whole industry, it's built around the aspiring writer, filmmaker, who will do anything to get their dream made. And then there are all of those leeches out there ready to suck on to you because they know you'll do anything to get it made. You know, my biggest word of advice to everybody is do everything you can to learn the business before you get in the business. Anybody else? Uh, Kira, I've completely just overridden you all over the place. Do you miss anything about movies today? Movies are not made for theaters anymore. The movie makers don't even care if you go to the theaters because that's not the primary way they're making their money today. Right. What do you... What well, do you unfortunately, I, I like small, intimate movies. So that's fine with me. <laughs> and, what's one and, of, what's, tell me one of your favorite movies. Now, Voyager. Uh, I love old movies. I, I mean, I love Gone with the Wind. I, I love... I just like, like anything that's a good story. I mean, uh, lately I've been watching more series, miniseries. Watched the French, a French village. It was a perfect COVID viewing. It was seven seasons of life in a French village during World War II. Mm. And uh, you really got to know the characters and the life. And it was riveting. Again, you're drawn to characters. I just, I hate things that are trying too hard yeah. and that are, you know, that are obvious, trying to be funny, trying to be popular. I like the advice that if you, if you feel like you want to be a screenwriter and you can't be anything else, you've got to go for it. Cause that's, but you know, you've got to be willing to give it your all. And, and, you know, if it will work, it will work. If not, it won't, but you won't survive if you don't follow your dream. You and won't, but your best shot at that is to learn the business. Now, who do you turn to? Who can you trust? I say, don't pay people. Don't pay people who say, like they do with novels, uh, come with us, uh, take the, the gold package, and we'll get you before, uh, this is really true. Some of them say, we'll get you before 60,000 people. I can give you uh, an, a URL to a club that is made up of readers and writers that will get you to 320,000 members. And all you have to do is post every day and they all get to see you. Don't pay anybody to, to make you a star. Don't no. do it. You can learn it all on your own. I like, what Don, I like what Don said earlier. One of the first things you would say to somebody that wanted to ask you is, who do you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what we used to start our workshops with, and you probably remember this, Patrick, when I walk into the classroom or the conference or whatever, I generally say, so it's really true. You think you want to be a screenwriter, which is probably the worst idea you've ever had. And now that we've got that established, let's at least get educated on the subject. So that was going to keep doing it because <laughs> It's not gonna not gonna come out in your first or your second or your third, and you just gotta keep going and re, you know show it to people you trust for feedback and oh. and and then be lucky. <laughs> also, uh, when you said that, uh, let me jump in and say, don't show it even to your best friend without registering it to the Writers Guild of America East or West. You could do that now online. And it's not a copyright. Don't think if you get it copywritten that that takes care of everything because those who read screenplays look to see that you're professional enough to know that a screenplay gets protected by the Writers Guild of America. 
some people say to me, well, it's just a draft. It's not that good. I don't want anybody to read it. Nobody reads it at the Writers Guild of America. All they do is send you a receipt. And that receipt is your proof that on this day, this was your story. So if anybody tries to steal it from you, you have proof that on that date, you registered it. So I urge everybody, that would be the first thing I would do to finish, even if I just finish a treatment, register it with the Writers Guild of America. It doesn't have to be a full screenplay. Do you guys have anything to add to that? No, Not I, to that part. That's good advice. I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. Whenever uh, there are there are production companies that check, they let's say that you send them a screenplay and they like it or, or a treatment, but they don't want to pay the money for it. They will then watch for it. They will check with the Writers Guild of America and see if that story is registered. The minute it isn't renewed, they'll steal it from you. I've seen that happen over and over. So when your registration starts to run out, register it again. Keep it protected. Jeff? Yes. What's your favorite movie? Oh, I've got a couple. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird just tears me up every time I watch it. Oh, it's um, wonderful. wonderful. But again, I go back to th things like Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, things like that. Uh, those are my favorite. But let me touch on something. Uh, as an actor, we see scripts that, and I've even watched some that, that, that just aren't that great. What do you guys, when I say you guys that, that teach these various screenwriter classes, what is your philosophy on collaboration? Because there's been so many scripts that I've seen that if somebody else had just collaborated on it maybe yeah. it would have been better and get another set of eyes on it because i know that writers i know i've written four books i'm a very very possessive about what i've written they're <laughs> all non-fiction so i don't have to worry about anybody stealing it because nobody would like my relatives either but <laughs> but what about what about a screenplay that needs input how do you go about that do you teach anything did you teach anything like that in your classes well i don't think we we don't think of ourselves as teachers we thought of ourselves as uh film professionals who went out and shared with those who wanted to follow our footsteps and we wanted to make sure they didn't make the mistakes that we made earlier on so i don't think we ever looked at ourselves as teachers did we jack or don <laughs> let me say one thing when i was doing these uh classes the thing the main thing i tried to get across to new writers is that the written word is different from the spoken word. And you can write a speech for somebody, and when you read that speech to yourself, it sounds great. But if you read it out loud, it sounds terrible. And that's what people have to understand who are writing screenplays. When you write dialogue, you have to read that dialogue back to yourself allowed because what you write on the page is not will not necessarily transfer to the spoken word problem is the person who wrote it doesn't realize they need help and even if they did they don't trust anybody else to come along and and fully grasp what they're trying to get at they need a good story consultant or a good story editor because they're not going to accept a co-writer if it's a rare person who would do that but it's also a rare person who realizes that they need help. Don't you guys agree? 
I agree with that. I, I agree with that. But at the same time, I remember when I was up in California um, living with other writers, and a lot of times there was, you know, somebody would come in there and they would say, well, I really need help writing this character correctly. And again, there was a deadline that needed to be met. And uh, we would just jump in there to say, okay, well, what about this? What about that? And, and we just help them, you know, just get their homework done. Because at the end of the day, they had to pay their bills. But again, you know, it's really difficult to find a good writing team, to yeah. find someone else who you can collaborate with, because there's a lot of egos and personality types that just don't get well along with each other. And so many screenwriters, when they write things, or just writers, they, they give birth to their work. So they don't like to have someone to come in there and just start editing things and start taking things in and out. And it's a really rare personality type that is very a he good, healthy version of themselves that will say, well, I'm not good at writing this type of character. Can you write this or help me write this action scene or something like that? It's, it's very, very difficult to find that. But when you find professional writers, they tend to collaborate more with each other. But the amateurs, no, not at all. Well, that's why they stay amateurs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for myself, I write certain things really well. And uh, if I need more commas added, then I'll just say, Esther, I need more commas. Can you look at this? Can you add a comma here? You know, and then she'll say, yeah, I, think, I think I can add 20. Right? Well, you know, uh, the, the importance of a comma is in, is in the sentence, let's eat, grandma. You know, but figure where the comma goes in there. And it makes a totally different it's, sentence. Let's than eat, comma, one. grandma. Period, yeah, right? yeah. See, yeah. I know. Take, I, I'm take not that, that comma bad. out and you got a different sentence. I'm not that bad. I'm I know. Bad. You're not. You're not. But here's the, here's, the, here's the thing about, let me tell you, let me tell you, because we read, Don and Jack and I have ran across this all the time in Hollywood. Steve is a terrific writer. And the reason he's terrific is that his characters are so alive. The pictures just jump the pictures in your head will jump off the paper at you. Where you go insane is that is it written correctly? And so as Don kept saying in workshops, if it isn't written correctly, and I'm trying to see a movie in my mind, the reel keeps breaking, and then I'm distracted from your story. I want to read a script where the reel doesn't break. I don't know if Don remembers saying that, but I remember him saying it over and over. And that's, that's true of Steve's story. Now, Steve is not getting approval. He doesn't care. He's not getting your approval for his script. He wants you to enjoy his story and he's going to make, I think he's going to make an animated thing of it and it will be terrific. So you don't often find a writer who is capable of creating pictures in your head. You've got to make a movie run in your mind as you read the script. It has nothing to do with commas except for those of us who are prissy and reading it. <laughs> yeah. well, the other really important thing about script writing is that when a person starts to write a script and they don't understand that the plot is moved along only by the dialogue. An audience never sees the narrative. The narrative is there strictly for the actors to read and for the director to read. And the crew. You're right. But the dialogue is what moves the story. And what a person is thinking, an actor is thinking in his mind, you don't see it. You don't hear it. You have to say the words to move well, the plot. 
what was the line that I would used in the workshops? If it can't be edited, it can't be lit, and it can't be acted, or it can't be directed, don't write it. New actors are always saying he came into the room on his way to the bedroom. We don't know where he's headed, and we don't care. We can't anticipate. We can only see what is on the screen at that moment. And so staying focused like that and remembering that you are only describing to the director and the actors and the crew what you want to see in a freeze frame. Every shot is a freeze frame in your mind as you write it. You're writing a screenplay. You see a shot in your head. Hold it in your head. Search it with your mind. Write down what you see on your paper. That's all you can do. You can't go ahead of it and you can't go behind it. You can't be subjective and you can't predict. Write down what's happening on the screen at the moment so the crew knows what the writer wants for people to see on the screen. Does that make sense? Makes sense. What kind of movies would you like to see? I mean, right now we're just seeing movies that are just filled with politicized narratives, um, agendas, Absolutely. you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, agendas that are just driven by just young screenwriters who are just going in there and saying, we need to have a, a powerful woman character just because she's a woman. Yeah. We don't need to train her or she doesn't have to learn anything because she's a woman, right. you know? We, well, we or they're to... trying to change the world through, uh, through movies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just weird like that. I mean, you watch a movie, and that's what, that's what really upsets me about the movie industry these days, because everything, you, you turn on a, on a television show or a, or a movie, and you're just being fed all of these political narratives out there. I didn't go to the movie to, you know, movies to learn about politics at all. I yeah, to, this is, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, I talked over you, of course. Try that again. No, I'm just saying that it's all agenda-driven. Yes. It's not for entertainment. Let me say that when, when we loved movies, we went to the movie because, uh, let's say that what's going on in life was really getting you down, really depressing you, and you're reading about wars, and you're reading about murders, and I'm not talking about a, a good murder mystery. I'm talking about the blood and gore on the streets. And you say, gosh, I remember my parents doing this let's go to the movies let's wash our brain out and we'd go to a good movie and we'd come out feeling so good totally different perspective on life we just took a break well i remember in the 60s and i remember don and myself talking about this in one of our workshops i remember saying in the 60s i don't want to see the news expanded on a, on a big screen i get enough of that the news on the radio and tv well, now, unfortunately, on TV and on the big screen, for the most part, we're seeing an expanded version of the, the gore and the ugliness in the world. We don't go to a movie and come out feeling, oh, gosh, that was entertainment. That took me away from the worries of the world. We, we see it exaggerated. And well, I think... There's a flip side to that, and that is that the news media has become entertainment media. Uh, not since Cronkite or Jennings have we had real news. No, we have editorials. We don't have news. Yeah, because I love the way they do it in Florida. There's a station down here, that, and the news media crew on that particular station calls themselves solutionaries. 
whoa, really? Oh, I'm serious. <laughs> oh I can't even. No, I don't even turn it wow. on anymore. <laughs> Solutionaries. Wow. Solutionaries. Oh, Not wow. only okay. do they tell you the news, they know how to solve it. Oh. <laughs> wow. Let's go to Akira. Akira, what did you say? What would you like to see in movies today? Well, I agree. Anything that, that's good and grips me, whether it's, I don't care if it's political or non-political, if it's interesting and well done, I'm there. Wouldn't you like to see just, you know, singing in the rain, just something that uplifts your spirits. It just makes you feel good. And you realize it doesn't even touch on reality. That is never going to happen. But it just makes you feel good. I guess if it's done well. Yeah. Um, I, just... I mean, I don't know. These days, it's kind of hard to just watch a mindless movie with so much going on. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And but that's why I can't watch what they call comedy on TV. Talk about mindless. Right. Right. I agree. That's totally so mindless. Terrible stuff. I think yeah. it comes down to what we started out this whole conversation. It comes down to the story. Tell me yeah. a good story, regardless of the subject matter. If it's a good story, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be there. And I will say this, Steve, I did watch the very first Iron Man with Downey Jr. And I enjoyed it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That's great. Now you have to watch Iron Man 2, then Iron Man 3. Ah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Don, skip, skip Iron Man 3. Yeah. What are you working on right now? I know that you have always gotten up in the morning, gone to your typewriter, your computer, whatever, and you have been the most disciplined writer I think I've ever known. You didn't even care if there was anybody waiting on the other end. I have to know that there's somebody I could potentially interest in it. I, I have to think it can get made or I won't do it because I just don't want to speculate anymore. But uh, what are you doing now? What what keeps, if I didn't mention it, let me say, you know, done, worked on, hundreds literally hundreds of films and tv in hollywood are you just saying i don't want to do this anymore i'm just breathing well, in and out and relaxing what are you I doing have to, i have to have something that i'm interested in writing i've written you know several scripts over the past year or two but yeah. right now i'm embroiled in writing my memoir and i'm uh -huh. writing it not for for publication, but so that my children, my grandchildren, their children will see who I am. Because I never knew my really who my parents were. They never discussed anything in front of me. Yes, I, I thought about that too. I don't know anything about them. Yeah. And I don't think that's right. So I want my kids and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to understand who the hell I was, good or bad. That's, so that's what I'm working on. You know, and what you, I, know, you know, Don, you're a different person, I, I would imagine, because I know the stuff I write. If my grandkids read it, they're going to say, God, I didn't know that about my grandpa. I mean, that's not the person I knew. That's probably true. It's not the person anybody knew. You know, there's certain things I try to be as forthcoming as possible without shocking anybody. But, you know, I just talk about what I did, people I worked with, you know, I worked with so many, you know, what is now it is famous people, but probably to them won't be famous. You know, people like Burt Lancaster and 
Burt Reynolds and Goddard, so many of them. I just, I just think it's good to see that I was a human being, that I was a person. I wasn't just a, a father and a grandfather. Throw in whatever anybody wants to say last, addressing yourself, if you will, to people who may be listening who want to be a screenwriter. Patrick? Dear Homework and Eat Your Wheaties. Okay. Jeff, what do you say? Well, I can't necessarily speak for screenwriters, but when people come up to me and say, hey, I hear you're an actor, I'd like to be one. My first question to them is, why? Why do you want yep. to be a screenwriter? Okay. Why do you want to be an actor? <laughs> Kira, what do you say to the screenwriter? What do you want them to do? Also, are you sure? And uh, if so, go for it. But don't expect <laughs> to, you know, to hit the jackpot on your first go. You know, if you have to do it and you can't do anything else, I would go for it. But really, you got to really love it and want it and feel like you have something to say. I think your message to them would be to entertain me. If you're going to take my time, entertain me. <laughs> Thank you, Kira. Okay, and, and we'll Pleasure meeting you, Kira. Likewise, really interesting listening to you all. <laughs> Talk to you later. Have a great weekend. Okay, Steve, what do you say to wrap it up? Well, I think those who want to learn the art of screenwriting should learn the art of story. Because if you learn the art of story, it could be, it could be applied to anything. And for myself, I took the art of screenwriting. I learned the art of story. And by learning the art of story, I learned all about personalities. I learned um, how to talk to people, you know, how to market my businesses out there. Even when with my barbecue company that I'm starting, I'm still telling the story of barbecue. And if I can make your mouth water with the words that I say and, and the pictures I, I show, it's the same art of filmmaking, if you really think, think about it, right? Um, you can do a lot of things. So I always tell screenwriters, aspiring screenwriters, learn the craft. That's great. But if you learn the art of story, it can take you even further. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They, they sort of go together. Uh, Don, you have any last words here, dear? Yeah. Going with what he just said, uh, I worked with a very, very prolific writer by the name of Stephen Cannell. And he said to me, because when I was starting to write, he said that always remember that plot comes out of character. Mm. And it took me a long time to figure that one out. And then I realized that how right he was. You can't create a plot and then fit the characters into that plot. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. to start with the character and let the character create the plot then it becomes real. And that's what I would tell a new writer. That's very good. Uh, Patrick is creating a new series for us. Uh, what's it going to be called? The Steamboat one? What's that called, Patrick? Well, the uh, current title is uh, Last Voyage of the Steamboat Malta. That's going to be following a, uh, uh, an, an old time 1800s uh, U.S. Marshal and his exploits throughout the Old West. Right. So we want everybody to be watching Mojave Beach Productions for that. Thank you. Best actors and best voices on Mojave Beach Productions. Steve is just our terrific buddy, and you're doing such a great job on the website, and we love you. Donald, good luck on everything you do, sweetheart. Thank and thank you all for being with us. We wish all screenwriters and aspiring screenwriters the best of luck. Don't give up. OK?
Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Esther. Bye, sweetie. Bye. See ya. This is Jeff Evans, thanking David Feslian of Feslian Studios for his theme, Solutions That Work, and wishing you the best of everything on your writing journey. Mojave Beach Productions. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million.